1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through verses 18 today. So if you have it there, 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to read that and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Paul writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain uh, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus and, and for his promise to come back for us, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we look at this section, as we understand why Paul was writing this to the Thessalonians, Lord, that we would understand Lord, what you want us to believe, what you want us to hold fast to. Please, Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, that we would be able to declare at the end of this service, Lord, we believe that Jesus is alive and he's coming soon. Please, Lord, do this for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. So, Paul's writing... Uh, to a group, if you remember, that are going through some pretty difficult stuff. So the Christians in Thessalonica were, Thessalonica were um, they were going through some pretty serious persecution, and they had only been believers for a matter of maybe months. And you, and you get the sense from Paul's writing that they were maybe thinking to themselves, is this worth it? Is it really worth it to go through all this difficulty? Specifically, they were feeling this because there were people, uh, believers in their midst, who were dying, possibly dying for their faith in Christ. And they, were, they had been really excited about Paul's message. Remember when Paul went there, and he was only there for, again, a few, a few weeks. When Paul went there and he shared with them, it's indicated in 1 and 2 Thessalonians that Paul shared with them about the Lord Jesus' soon return. That he didn't say, well, you guys are just new Christians. We won't talk about that stuff. It's a bit confusing. So, but, but he actually did seem to kind of say to them, look, there's this great hope. This Jesus who rose from the dead is coming back soon. And that's good news for us. But then as they go through this difficulty and this suffering, and they see people dying, again, probably for their faith, they wonder, well, what about those people? Because we, we want Jesus to come back. We want heaven to come down on earth. We can't wait for this to happen. What about those people that they miss out? And so he wants to really answer this question. And it's important because really what, what Paul's going to deal with, he's going to deal with death. How are we as believers to look at death? There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul's quoted in an Old Testament verse, and he says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? 
And it's easier for us to say, yeah, that's great news. I'm looking forward to heaven. It's going to be great. Until we face death or someone we love faces death or dies. When we're in that situation, all of a sudden we're really challenged with, what do I really believe about death, about life? And so Paul is going to deal with this issue. Now it's interesting because Paul wants to make sure that these guys have an understanding that will actually bring a comfort to them. This first section in 1 Thessalonians here, he's going to begin to touch on what we would call eschatology or end times things, last days. That's why the theme of 1 Thessalonians is you know, living godly in the last days because he is dealing with those issues. But I want to be clear about this week. This week, he's not talking anything about dates. He's not talking about anything about uh, details. He just wants them to have hope. And so we, we take from that right off the bat that from this, what happens is Jesus wants us, God wants us to have hope in the midst of our difficulties. So we, we pick it up in verse 13. And Paul says this, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren. And this phrase, I don't want you to be ignorant, is a phrase that Paul used quite a bit. In fact, every time Paul seemed to be dealing with uh, difficult topics that would confuse Christians, he would use this phrase. should be on the screen. In in Romans 11.25, he answers the question, well, why didn't Israel recognize Jesus as their Messiah? That's a big question, isn't it? The majority of Jews, if, if he's, Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, the majority of Jews rejected him. Why did that happen? He deals with that. And he starts off with a phrase, don't, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, really chapter 12, 13, and 14, he deals with this idea of the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. He writes to the church of Corinth, who, who he says about them they didn't fall short in any gift, yet... They were kind of misusing and, and not loving people with the gifts of the Spirit. And so he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to understand what the work of the Spirit is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul talks about his own suffering. And he says to them, listen, I, want you, I don't want you to be ignorant about the suffering that I experienced. This issue of being believers, being godly people, and still suffering greatly. Paul wants us to understand this. And so he says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then also here in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he's dealing with, one, the believer's death, but also the second coming of Christ. And it's interesting, these are the things that tend to confuse Christians the most, that we debate about, that we wrestle with, that we maybe even want to ignore. In fact, this is really what tends to happen with a lot of these things. We tend to respond in one of two ways. One is we respond in, ooh, we get so kind of morbidly fixed on this issue or one of these issues that we begin to take things past what Scripture actually says. But usually the opposite is true. The opposite is, look, this stuff sounds kind of a bit weird. I don't want to talk about this stuff. It just kind of seems a bit odd. And yet Paul's saying, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to have a clear and comforting understanding of what God's plan is and the hope that we have in his resurrection. And so really what Paul gives us here is three reasons why death has lost its sting. And, and I'm, I'm aware, as we talk about this, I am aware that some, for some of you this may be a bit of a trigger. 
This may be a bit raw. Maybe you've lost somebody recently, a loved one. Maybe that loved one didn't know Jesus, and that brings up all kinds of heavier questions. But I want to focus on this text the same way Paul delivered it. I want to focus primarily to what this says about death and the believer and how we can learn to have death lose its sting in our lives. And so here's the first of three reasons I want to share with you today. that Paul's wanting them to believe, they believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection. He says, I don't want to be ignorant of you, or I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, he says, verse 13, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for, uh, for death, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, it's really clear here that Paul is not saying that he doesn't want them to sorrow. It's appropriate for us to sorrow, even sorrow over death. It's right for us to do that. It's, the, it's, a, it's both the natural and the healthy thing for us to do, even as believers when we're dealing with death. And it's really important that we, do, we sorrow with people who are sorrowful about death. You know, we have this exhortation in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, where it tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If someone just lost a loved one, we don't want to go, hey, don't worry about it. High five, man. Jesus is alive. They're going to be hurting. We should hurt with them. Death is, as the scripture calls it, the last enemy. It should cause us to mourn, which is interesting if you think about it, because death is probably the most natural thing in the world. And yet we know there's something wrong, something wrong about it. And so Paul's not saying, don't mourn. He wants us to mourn, but he, he wants us, he expects us to sorrow, but he doesn't want us to sorrow without hope. See, see for us as Jesus followers, when an unbeliever dies, we sorrow for them, We're, we mourn for them. But when a believer dies, we mourn for ourselves. The unbeliever dies, we mourn for ourselves as well. But, but the good news is, when, when someone who knows Jesus dies, it's not the end for them. And so, yes, we mourn, we rightly mourn. In fact, the closer we are to those, person, those, those, those people that passed, the, the longer it takes, that mourning process takes. There was a lovely sister that went to our church uh, for years. Uh, she actually just went home to be with the Lord last year. And um, when I met her, I had just uh, met her and her husband of 40 nine years, and he had cancer. And not long after I met them, he passed away. And in a very real sense, she never got over it. It was really tough. I mean, her and her husband both knew the Lord. They both loved the Lord. They were, they were committed Jesus followers. They, they shared Jesus and demonstrated Jesus wherever they went. But she never got over it. And she didn't get over it because she so loved her husband, and her husband so loved her. They were the most cute, romantic old people I've ever seen. <laughs> and so it was painful when this ended, and it was appropriate that it was painful. But the thing that she learned to do was to never, she never learned to kind of not sorrow, but she learned to have hope in the midst of sorrow. She knew that soon and very soon she would be reunited with her husband. And now she is. She's in a place where the relationship they have now is so much more close and so much more fulfilling than anything she had this side of heaven. So we mourn, but we don't mourn as those without hope. 
In verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now I want you to notice how Paul is emphasizing the direction of their faith. He's not saying, he's not saying look, if, if uh, we believe in our resurrection, that's what matters. Just believe you're going to be resurrected. Just believe you're going to be in heaven. He says, no, I want your faith to be in the risen Jesus. He's saying, do, do you trust this risen Jesus? Now, this is important because the more we trust Jesus who is alive, the more confidence we have in our own resurrection. And this is really what, what the scripture teaches us to do. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, Paul talks about, the, the, it's a great chapter to read about resurrection. You should read the whole chapter. There, there's homework for you. Read 1 Corinthians 15. But this is one of the things he says, after kind of saying, listen, if the dead don't rise, our faith is in vain. He then says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so, so Paul says, listen, don't you recognize, because Christ is risen, we're going to be resurrected. It's a fact. It's a done deal as far as he's concerned. That's interesting, too, because you guys remember the story of uh, Lazarus? Remember there was Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus? These were people that the scripture says in John 11, Jesus loved. And, of course, what happened to Lazarus, right? He died. In fact, he was sick, and a message was, he was with, Jesus was with his disciples away from where Lazarus was, and a message came to Jesus with his disciples saying, hey, the one you love, Lazarus, he's, he's, he's very sick. Come quickly, Jesus, please, because they knew, Jesus, you're the healer. You come quickly, he'll be healed. And Jesus delays on purpose. And as he delays, what happens? He, he, he says to his disciples, his disciples say, come on, we, we should go, Lord. Really, Lazarus is sick. It's okay, he's, he's asleep. Oh, okay, well, then we'll leave him. If he's asleep, he's better. No, 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 I mean, he's already dead. And they're like, what? And then they start to go. And they get to where Lazarus is, and of course, Mary, Lazarus' sister, is weeping, saying, Lord, where were you? If you would have been here, he'd still be alive. And of course, then there's also uh, Martha, too. Martha says the same thing, Lord, where were you? If you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. Have you ever felt like that? Man, I wish I had a, a pound for every time someone came to me, specifically someone who wasn't yet a Jesus follower, and said, if God's so loving, how can we let my grandma die? It's interesting, isn't it? It's the most natural thing in the world. Well, grandmas tend to die after a while. This is what happens. I'm not trying to be callous. I mean, it's just, but the thing is, we love these people, and we think, why doesn't God stop death? And this is how Martha felt. But what happened? Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And so here's what Martha says to Jesus. He says, she says, I know that my brother Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So what she's doing there, she's saying, okay, yes, I know the right theology that there's this resurrection in the last days. Yeah, thanks, Jesus. That's not that comforting. And here's what he says. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He could have said to her, do you trust me? Because this is the thing that Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to, to, to understand. This is the thing that God wants us to understand. That he's calling us to put our faith in him, the risen Jesus. Resurrection isn't just a principle or a metaphor for a better life, some sort of overcoming life. Well, definitely, we are called to overcome by the power of the resurrection. But it's bigger than that. When we talk about resurrection in a New Testament sense, we're talking about the one who has resurrected, the one who will resurrect, and the one who is the resurrection. It's all wrapped up in him. This is what he's calling us to. You see, Paul's not testing these guys. He's not saying, well, I thought you believed. He's saying, listen, you believe in Jesus. You're suffering because you know that Jesus died and rose from the dead. You know that's true. Guess what? He's still alive. And because he's still alive, you have a hope of resurrection. Not hope just like, gee, that would be nice, but an expectation of good. You have that. Now, he, he, he hints at something here about his, the Lord's return when he says in verse 14, and so even so God will bring with him, with Christ, those who sleep in Jesus. But then he says in verse 15, for this I say to you, Paul says, look, I'm still making my point, this I say to you, by the word of the Lord, in other words, Paul's saying, listen, this is not my opinion. This is not my interpretation. This is what God says. What's interesting about this phrase is, Paul could have just said, I'm an apostle of the Lord, and therefore he speaks with that kind of authority. He automatically speaks with that apostolic authority that, that people should heed. But he actually says, not just that, he says, look, I'm speaking to the very words of God. Now, we don't know what he's referencing here for sure. He could be referencing... Um, Something that Jesus has said in the New Testament that, that maybe we need to interpret better. It could be referencing something that Jesus had said that wasn't recorded in the New Testament. I think you guys probably recognize that Jesus said loads of stuff. The scripture is really clear. If, if all that Jesus had taught and did was recorded, the world couldn't hold the volumes. Could be that. Could be that this is part of the direct revelation that, that Paul received from Christ as a unique apostle that we read about in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But the point is, Paul's saying, I'm not sharing with you a, my opinion. I'm not just giving you some concept. I'm telling you, this is what God says. This is what the risen Christ says. And this is really important, especially as we continue to unpack the issue of these last days. One of the characteristics of the last days, of the day between when Christ, the Christ's first coming and his second coming, that time in between is called the last days, one of the, the characteristics of that is deception, false doctrine, lying signs and wonders. And so we have to be wise about these kinds of things. We've got to go back to what's authoritative. In fact, interesting, another apostle, John, wrote this in his letter. I'm reading from the New Living Translation just to keep it fresh and also because it makes it super clear. Listen, in 1 John 4, this is verses 1 and 6, he, he, John writes, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. 
You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. But we, speaking of he and the other apostles, we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen if they do not listen to us. And that, that is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Now, with the issue of the details of the coming of Christ, which we'll get more into in, in, in future weeks, people who love Jesus and love Scripture disagree. That's okay. But what we can do is disagree on that the Scripture is the authority. This is how the, we have access to the apostolic authority, because the Scripture's been written down so we always go back to Scripture. What has God said about these things? What has God not said about these things? So Paul's wanting to be clear. Listen, and remember, this is all about Paul comforting these people. He's saying, listen, again, I'm not just trying to give you some nice platitude. This is what Jesus says. He says, listen, by the word of the Lord, he says, verse 15, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Interesting. He, he even goes on to say in the last part of verse 16, notice he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now what Paul's saying here is he's, he's saying, listen, let's be really clear, there is absolutely no disadvantage of dying in Jesus, of, of physically dying as a Christian before the Lord comes back. You're not missing out on a thing. It's not a problem. Don't worry. You're not missing out on anything. He wants them to be really, really clear. Now, what's interesting about this is that when Paul says in the first part of verse 15, uh, he says, we who are alive and remain, the fact that he says we who are alive and remain is telling. It means that Paul seemed to, to believe, he, he, ex he expected that Jesus could, he didn't say would, bless you, <laughs> Uh, he was saying, listen, that Jesus could come back in his lifetime. Now that's significant, especially when we talk about the timing of things, because if he's expecting Jesus could come back in his lifetime, that means some of the current events that are happening now don't necessarily mean now we know he's going to come back. Now, they, they can be indicators, we'll talk about that, especially in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But the point is, Jesus could come back any time, that's the point. Okay? Now, we're going to talk more about that a bit next week, but especially in the idea of living in expectation. But I, I want you to notice, again, ver, the last part of verse 16, where he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first, that Paul's being really clear that the dead in Christ, the Bible's really clear, listen, the dead in Christ are already with Christ. Here's how I know this. Uh, and I know this, we know this from Paul's own life, his own testimony, uh, and also from Paul's stated words. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He's in jail. He, there's a really good chance he could lose his life uh, for preaching the gospel. And so the people that love him in Philippi are worried for him, and Paul doesn't seem to be that worried. In fact, you read the book of Philippians, and it's totally full of joy. Paul's like, it's cool. And here's what he says. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be better for me, but for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. I mean, think about this. Paul's in prison. Paul's potentially facing death. And he's going, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I died and got to go see Jesus? 
Now, that doesn't sound like a person who thinks, wouldn't it be cool if I could die? And then my soul would sleep for 2,000 years until Jesus comes back. There are some churches that teach this soul sleep thing, but I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. In fact, listen, Paul says plainly in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he says, yes, we are fully confident and would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we would be at home with the Lord. Now, there is debate about, okay, does this mean that the, the resurrection of, of believers happens as they die? They die in the resurrected, they die in the resurrected. Is it that? Or does it mean that they just are uh, disembodied souls in the presence of God? And people can debate about that. That's fine. But the point is, to be absent from the body, presence of the Lord. If we lose these earthly bodies, guess where we go? Right to the presence of Jesus. This is so important for us to understand. It puts all things in such great perspective. But notice also, again, the first part of verse 16. For here Paul writes, And the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God. Now some people see this as Sort of three indicators of part events that happen in rapid succession. It, maybe it is. I don't know. I, I see it more as just this idea that when he comes, everyone's going to know. There's no such thing as a secret rapture. If you don't know what the rapture is, we're going to talk about it in just a minute. But there's no such thing as a secret rapture. It's not going to be this thing like we've, we've seen Hollywood do where, um, you know, everyone's, you know, we're, we're here all of a sudden, boom, people are gone and nobody knows what happened. There's going to be a... A shout, a holy shout, so the world's going to know what just happened. They might deny it, they might blame it on aliens, but it'll happen. The point he's making is, all these things have to do with a person coming in authority. So that when Jesus returns, he returns in authority. And notice, listen, it says that Christ himself, he doesn't send a representative, He comes, and we know, listen, that he comes bodily. Now, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because, again, there's a very popular understanding in Christian circles about the fact that the kingdom is just simply just a spiritual, only a spiritual reality. Now, it is a spiritual reality that that Christ rules and reigns in believers, he rules, it, he rules us it, through our hearts. He rules us today. So there's a spiritual reality to the kingdom. But there's also a, a, a literal, physical reality to the kingdom. The Bible pictures. Jesus coming back. And this is really good news. It's good news because when Jesus comes back, he writes every wrong. Now you say, well, John, how do you know this? Well, listen to this, okay? In the book of Acts... After Jesus has, has, has risen from the dead, he's been with his disciples off and on for about 40 days. He's preparing them for his ascension. He's going to ascend into heaven, right? So he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends before their eyes in the heaven. I mean, it's a literal event. He, he goes up, he's surrounded by clouds and disappears. And these guys are tripping. I mean, they're just all looking up like this. What is going on? He, he just... He went up. He disappeared. He's, what just happened? And as they're tripping and looking up like this, these two men robed in white, probably angels, come and they say to them this. They say, men in Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 
Now, I just read this week in, in preparation one of my favorite um, commentators, Bible commentators, and I don't want to say his name because I disagree with him on this and I don't want to put you off because he's a good guy. But one of the things that he said, he goes, we've got to make sure we're not being too literal about this return of Jesus thing. Why not? The scripture is totally literal about the, the return of Jesus thing, and it's meant to be our comfort. It's meant to be our hope. Who, who's going who's gonna to fix this? Who's going to fix this mess? Parliament? Really? Trump? Hello. Some people think he might be the Antichrist. Don't go there. The, the, the reality is, we need a king. A good and trustworthy king. And we have one. His name is Jesus. And he's worthy to be followed and trusted even in the face of death. So they believed in Jesus' bodily resurrection. They could expect in, uh, uh, Jesus' bodily return, and their desire would be to be in Jesus' bodily presence. Verse 17, Paul uses the same phrase again. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that phrase, caught up, uh, in the Latin version of the New Testament, the phrase caught up, is a, it's, it's a one word, it's like reptura. It's something like that, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but basically, uh, it's where we get the English word rapture. So some of you guys may have heard of the rapture. Now again, don't worry, we're not going to get into any of the timing and stuff, because Paul's not talking about that right now, don't worry about any of that. But Paul is kind of here indicating, he's introducing us to this Biblical doctrine called the rapture. Now, there are, again, the default position of, of most, at least most of the Church of England, and I'm talking about the Church of England who are sort of solidly gospel-believing Church of England, okay? Because um, obviously we know there's parts of the Church of England that, that aren't, aren't so solid. Uh, I'm talking about the people that really love Jesus. The default position for most of them is a position called amillennialism. We'll talk more about that in the future. And so they kind of see, they, they see that basically a lot of these things have to be um, interpreted as figurative. And I understand where they're coming from because people can go nuts with some of the imagery. I do get that. But, man, if you look at scripture at face value, this stuff seems to be as literal as possible. And so this picture that Paul's writing and talking about a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus and a literal bodily return of Christ, a literal being caught up in the air, is going to happen. Amen. It's going to happen anytime soon. Amen. <laughs> now, some of this might be really new to some of you, and you might be going, this is weird, oh no, this is weird. I thought this American guy would bring up some weird stuff eventually. I, I hope you guys can go back to Scripture and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Go back to Scripture and see for yourself. Let me again say, show you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52, Paul writes, What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die 
but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, and when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life forever, and, and, and we who, live, who are living will also be transformed. Now, you go, wait a second, it sounds like he's saying we don't get physical bodies. We're going to see on Easter Sunday, from Luke 24, that Jesus is clear in his resurrection, when they're all like, oh dude, is this a ghost? What are we seeing? The disciples are thinking this. He goes, wait a second, hey, I'm not a ghost. Flesh and blood you can see. Give me some food, I'll prove it. He had a real physical body. A new, glorified, eternal body, but a real physical body. This is our hope. Do you know that for the Jesus follower, Jesus heals every single sickness. Most of them, well really, ultimately all of them, at the resurrection. Sometimes Jesus heals now, and it's great for us. We should ask God to heal. The Bible commands us to do that. So we should ask God to heal. And sometimes Jesus heals now, supernaturally. I've, I've been blessed to see it a few times. But ultimately, you know what our healing is? When the Lord comes back. This is a great hope for us. Now, this is important that we understand, too, because one of the things about this issue of the rapture, sometimes especially, I think it's fair to say this, especially in American churches. Sometimes this whole issue of the rapture, being caught up, it's, it's taught as if it's escapism. Oh, nothing bad is going to happen to us. We're the Americans. We believe in Jesus. He'll take us home before all the bad stuff happens. That's not promised anywhere in Scripture. I'm not talking about the time of the rapture in regards to what's called the Great Tribulation. Again, we'll talk about that later. I'm talking about just the reality that we are called, as Jesus followers, to suffer. We're called to be willing to lay down our lives for his sake in the gospel. We're called to be marginalized and still love the people that are marginalizing us. This is what we're called to. We're a peculiar people. And, and the reality is that the hope of this rapture, as Paul says so clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, the hope of the rapture is not, oh, I escaped all the really bad stuff. No, the hope of the rapture is I'm finally going to be completely changed. See, this is important. It's important that we recognize the need for the change. Paul had said, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 15, this flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. We can experience the kingdom now. We, we are, the kingdom of God is within us now, within the Holy Spirit doing us because we believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. He's the one who gives us new life. He's the one who's changing us from the inside out. And sometimes, let's be honest, it feels like that change is happening so slow, if at all. Sometimes we think, Lord, it's so hard to follow you. Is it worth it? Then we wonder if it's worth it. Then we feel condemned for wondering if it's worth it. Am I going to make it, Lord? Am I going to make it, Lord? Do you know what this doctrine is teaching us? You're going to make it. Do I have to die for my faith to get there? You've got to be willing. But hey, you may be raptured. <laughs> but here's what we do all need. We all need this transformation the supernatural transformation. This corruption needs to put on incorruption. And Paul's telling the Thessalonians, he's saying, this is your hope. 
You're going to be fully changed. You are going to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You are going to love your neighbor as yourself. You are going to experience the world we all want. We are moving towards a world we are, or we are desiring, as I say, as believers, we are desiring and fighting for a world where we deal with injustice, where we, we take care of what God's given us, where we commit to each other in real, enduring relationship, and we fall short over and over and over again. Why? Because the kingdom is not yet. But when the kingdom comes with Christ in its fullness, that's what our experience is going to be. That's why it's worth it. This is why Paul says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says this. I'll close with this. In fact, as I read the scripture, maybe the music team can come back up. We're going to close with a song today. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when Jesus is revealed, that's when he comes back, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Why do we still pursue justice? Why do we still pursue holiness, wanting to be set apart for God? Why do we still seek to love our enemies, even when they're right next to us? Why do we do this? Because we want to be pure just as he is pure. And we have an expectation that when the Lord comes back, we're going to be. We're going to sing a, a song we've sung lots of times. It's really basically taken from what's called the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest and most universally accepted doctrinal statements that we have. And Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, was writing to people that needed more than just a reminder of doctrine. They needed to know that the Jesus they believed was going to do all that he said he did. And they could know that for sure because he's alive. Do you believe that? Do you trust him in the face of the sorrow of death, your own family members, and, and, and feeling that being pushed aside by this world? Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of that? Do you believe he's alive? Do you believe he wants to work this good work in you?